Good evening, guys. Go ahead. Be seated. Welcome. Uh, if you're with us live uh, or watching uh, online, <clears throat> let's open up our Bibles tonight. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 here tonight. We're coming off of Jesus' answer in the last section to the Jews who wanted to kill him for healing on the Sabbath. In their minds, he broke the law. The reality is, is that he broke uh, their traditions of the law, uh, which had strayed far from the law, but he didn't break the law. And so Jesus, all of that took place down in Jerusalem, and Jesus is now back from Jerusalem in the area of Galilee. And we're going to look here at, uh, at an amazing and well-known miracle of the Lord involving five loaves and two fish. And I will say this, that while the story may be familiar, perhaps one of the most familiar stories about Jesus, um, I think that the Lord has some fresh encouragement uh, for us here tonight. So let's take a look at Jesus feeding, the, uh, feeding actually uh, more than 5,000 people. John chapter 6, verse 1. And uh, says this, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Um, You should know in the Bible, uh, the Sea of Galilee has several names. Uh, Its ancient name is Kinneret, uh, or the Sea of Kinneret, which is how it's referred to in the Old Testament. And uh, that Kinneret in uh, Hebrew is harp. And that's because, like the instrument, the harp. Uh, and uh, that's because the shape of the Sea of Galilee is shaped like a harp, which is really interesting because, uh, you know, obviously they couldn't fly high enough over the Sea of Galilee to see the shape, uh, but they were sophisticated enough uh, in making maps that once they made that first map, uh, they no doubt figured it out. But, but that's what Kinneret means. It means harp. And uh, Tiberius is the name to this day, actually, of the main city on the Sea of Galilee, uh, named after Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it was sometimes called the Sea of Tiberius uh, or the Sea of Galilee, and that's because it uh, uh, was this main lake. It's, the main, uh, it's a very large freshwater lake. It's not actually a sea uh, in the region of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, just in case you're wondering about it, is uh, 13 miles long uh, and about 8 miles at its widest point at the top, about 8 miles wide. Um, So that gives you a little bit of a sense of what size lake it is. It's surrounded virtually on all sides by uh, by mountains. not by Rocky Mountain standards, but uh, by Israel standards, we would call them uh, small uh, hills or mountains, uh, significant enough though, so that it basically forms a bowl. And uh, that's how some of the famous storms on the Sea of Galilee developed, wind blowing through the canyons, through these mountains quickly uh, upon uh, this lake. And uh, so the Sea of Galilee was the primary source of income for uh, James and John and for Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen, and the fish that they, to this day, often catch uh, in the Sea of Galilee is tilapia. It's referred to as 
And that part of the world is St. Peter's fish, and uh, that's the fish. If you go to Israel and you order St. Peter's fish, it's usually uh, tilapia. And uh, so that was their business. That was their livelihood. They lived, they were born, they grew up, they lived a big part of their lives. Uh, Had they not become disciples of Jesus, probably would have spent their entire life there on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus set up his headquarters uh, in Capernaum, which was on the northwestern side uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And here it says that he went over the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He would have crossed over to a more remote area, which was the northeastern side uh, there of the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. What you see sometimes when when Jesus travels uh, in the Gospels, sometimes across the Sea of Galilee by boat uh, at this northern end of the sea, a lot of times people knew, you know, if you got into a boat uh, and you were, they found out you were going to the other side, well, it wasn't really hard to figure out where you would be, so they would just walk. They would walk around and they would they would be waiting for Jesus, you know, uh, he couldn't escape them a lot of times because they, they just wanted to see uh, more signs and they, they wanted him to, to, to work. And so this crowd quickly made their way <coughs> on land <coughs> around uh, to the same location. And what's interesting is, is that we see that, that they followed not necessarily because uh, they believed, um, not in a full sense of faith. In other words, they believed in miracles, but they didn't necessarily uh, fully place their faith and trust always in Jesus. And so a lot of people, they believed in the signs, Jesus' ability to do the signs, but, but not necessarily in Jesus. And, and there's a difference. In fact, I think that we see a flavor uh, of that today. There are a lot of people that believe in signs, uh, but not necessarily uh, in Jesus. And so they followed, and, uh, and, and as some do today, to, to see uh, something miraculous. And verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat with his disciples. So as I said, the Sea of Galilee is surrounded uh, by mountains, and so Jesus comes up from the Sea of Galilee, Galilee quickly, uh, goes up the mountain. He's surrounded uh, by all of these people, and uh, so he sits down, and, and it says in verse 4 that the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So we get a sense of the, what time of year it was. It was uh, getting close to, if not uh, into the beginning of spring. Uh, which is when the Passover takes place. And uh, this is an ideal time uh, in Israel. Uh, my favorite uh, time in Israel, you know, uh, the rain has usually stopped. Everything's green. Um, the temperatures are perfect. Uh, the flowers uh, are out and the weather is warming up. Uh, from the winter and and so this is the time Jesus is just out there in the in in what are likely pretty good conditions teaching uh, and ministering uh, to all of these people in different places verse 5 and uh, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him he said to Philip 
Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus sees this whole wave of people coming toward him. And based on how the scripture just described them, um, you, some people might have been irritated. Because Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows that not necessarily, um, well, a lot of them are not sincere, that they're only following him because they're interested in, in miraculous things, and, you know, they're, uh, they're quite needy, and, and so, but, but Jesus is not irritated. He's concerned for their needs. And what that tells me is, is if you have people like this, that a lot of them, you know, they're, they're maybe not following for the right reasons. And Jesus cares about their needs. And I would tell you this, that, that even Jesus is even concerned about the needs of those who don't follow him. And all day long, he's, he's meeting the needs of people Think about that, who, who don't follow him, who are actively fighting against him in a lot of cases or have rejected him, and he's concerned about their needs. So what that tells me about you and I is, is that those of us that have chosen to follow him, we can definitely be assured that he's concerned about our needs. And in particular, Jesus is especially concerned when we have unmet needs. In other words, Jesus isn't looking at them saying, well, you know, that one needs a haircut and over here, you know, and this and that. He, he sees their immediate unmet needs, and that's what he's uh, concerned about. And so verse 6, it says, he asked Philip this question to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So he asked him, where should we buy bread that these may eat? So he's not asking Philip, you know, about um, the nearest Costco, you know. Like, Philip, where can we buy in bulk uh, that we can feed uh, all, of, all of these people that we can meet all of their needs? It says that he was testing him because he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus doesn't go into a situation and have to think about it. And think, well, let's see, you know. But what, how am I going to handle this situation? He already knows. He knows the situation. He knows the best way to handle that situation. So he already knows what he's going to do. So when he asks this question, it's not for his own benefit. It's for Philip's benefit. He wanted to see if Philip would say, why do we need to buy bread? You're God. That could have been one answer that he was looking for from Philip. In other words, Philip, where are we going to buy bread? We don't need to buy bread. You're God. And that would have been a reasonable answer. The reason being is, is that he, you know, as God, he had done far more than this. This was 5,000 uh, plus people, 5,000 men plus women, children. He, for 40 years fed over a million people every single day. This is just one meal, but every single day in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 35, we, we read about the manna. Manna is interesting. It's a, uh, the word manna means what is it. 
<laughs> That's what it means. It means what is it? So they, they never really came up for a, with a name for what God provided for them in the wilderness for uh, 40 years. So they called it manna. Probably the first time they said, you know, what is it? And then um, the name just stuck. And so for 40 years, we're told in Exodus chapter 16, verse 5, the children of Israel ate manna until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. We're told that they had manna from the time they were in the wilderness. God provided it, and it ceased uh, right up until the time they entered in the land, and God, God provided for them from the land. So, you know, Philip uh, knows the Scripture. Enough by this time. He had, he had been raised. He's, he, he's, he's uh, a Jew, and like, he, you know, even uh, these fishermen and, and guys of other trades, um, you know, they, they, uh, they knew the Scripture too. They had been taught the Scripture, regardless of what their background or their job was. They, they knew the Scripture, and they knew these stories. And, and one of the most famous stories they would have been told was about the wilderness wandering and how, how God fed the nation for 40 years in the wilderness. So, had Philip truly recognized at this point who Jesus was and what he was capable of doing, that he was God, he would have responded in that way. You know, why do we need to, to, to buy bread? You're God. You, you're used to providing bread for your people. In fact, you are the bread of life. You are the bread that has come down from heaven. You know, you're the, the embodiment uh, of that. And that would have been a reasonable answer. Now, Jesus, as I said, knew what he was going to do. And there are times when God will test us. And he already knows what he's going to do. But he gives us an opportunity to think and to respond according to faith. And I, I think that that's something good to remember. That when you get in a situation... Maybe you feel as though God is testing you or asking you a question. Maybe not audibly, but you, know, you feel as though there's a, there's a question being asked in life of you. Then I encourage you to think about that. Stop and think about who is asking the question. Think about what he is uh, asking, what he is capable of. And then begin to think according to your faith. And respond as best as you can uh, according to your faith. And that's what Jesus is, is giving Philip an opportunity to do. Philip instead says this, verse 7. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. So, unfortunately, Jesus asks uh, Philip the question, and he says, look, if we took more than six months' wages, we wouldn't be able to buy each of them a crumb. Now, you may look at a situation, and that may be the logical answer. We're sitting here. We don't have that much money. We've got over 5,000 people here, maybe 10,000 
uh, people, maybe even closer to 15,000 people. We don't, we don't know the exact number. We only know the number of men. But we've got all of these people here. And even if we had six months' wages, we couldn't buy enough. That, that logically speaking, if Jesus wasn't part of the equ- equation, that would be true. But when God is getting ready to work, he's looking for us. When he's getting ready to work, he's looking for us to anticipate something great. That's why he asked Philip the question. He wanted to give him a chance to anticipate. Not necessarily, you know, we can't fault Philip for not knowing what Jesus was going to do. It never happened before. Not, Not this way. But what you could say is that Philip and each of us in a similar situation could have done something more to anticipate that he was going to do something special, that that Jesus was going to do something great. And so he doesn't expect us to, to figure everything out ahead of time. He just wants us to believe that he is going to do something instead of saying it can't happen. He just wants us, he doesn't need you to figure out the details. He's not expecting you to figure out the details. He's just expecting you to believe that he's going to do something instead of just concluding that it can't happen. You know, I think one of the more frustrating, you know, I think everybody's personality is a little bit different. And... uh, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't say by any stretch, you know, that, that uh, you know, I have always done this or will always do this. I hope to have faith uh, to always expect that God is going to do something and just look for him to do that uh, and, and to declare that he will do that. But generally speaking, I I try to think that way and uh i don't uh i don't like when um people's first response is it can't be done uh because i in most situations especially spiritual situations i don't believe that i believe that if god wants to do something it will not only can it be done it will be done so you know, a lot of people, their natural reaction, you ask them to do something, and the first thing that they say is, uh, it can't be done. And so, you know, my job in those situations is, is to push harder, uh, whether it's myself or somebody else. Let's, let's pray. Let's find a way. Find a way, you know, because in life, you, life is full of impossible situations. I, I can't think of too many situations where you... You come into the situation and everything just works out easy. You know, what you want just all kind of falls into place, happens that way. Everything just, you know, goes great. It's usually met by a situation uh, or a set of circumstances where you say, hmm, wow, I, I don't see a way around that. And as a believer, you don't have to necessarily know the way around that, but you should be able to see that there is a way around that with God and your mindset should change not should change from not that it can't be done but it that it can be done and allow your mind to wander to 
think of how God may want to work in that situation. And be willing to take a step forward into an impossible situation to allow, to allow God to work. And that's what we see of the great servants of the Bible. They were the kind of people who said, let's just see what God wants to do. They were like, like Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know, let's just go. Yeah, we're outnumbered. There's all these guys over here, but there's nothing to stop the Lord from working through just the two of us. Let, let's go, see, go, go and see what God might do. And that's the attitude that, that Jesus was, was uh, training was creating, really, through this whole experience with Philip. Now, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So, while this is all going on, you know, the other disciples are, are hearing some of this, and uh, Andrew Peter's brother just starts thinking aloud and he accidentally gets the right answer only he doesn't know it or or that he's got you know why it's the right answer but he Andrew just thinks out loud and he stumbles on the right answer so there was a boy there and he had an overprotective Jewish mother who wouldn't let him chase after Jesus without packing him a lunch isn't that funny so there's over 5,000 people there, and there's one kid with a lunch. He was unique. He was rare. I would have liked to have meet, meet that family. You know, he had one of those moms, oh, let me just pack you a snack. Five loaves of bread and, it's, and some fish. You know, this kid's carrying his loaves and his fish along as he chases after Jesus, but he's the only one with any food. And... and it's interesting because it says five barley loaves. Now, barley is like the cheap crop. Barley's the the less desirable crop. In fact, there's a passage in the Jewish Talmud where this man says, well, you know, it's a fine barley crop this year. And another man answers him, tell it to the horses and the donkeys. Because, you know, barley was, who cares how good the barley crop is? Because, you know, that's, that's, that's not really uh, as good to eat. But what that tells me also is, is that Jesus works with the simple, this, this young boy and his, his five loaves and two fish. He works with the simple. He works with simple things. He provides miraculously, but not necessarily luxuriously. And that's where these a lot of these faith preachers get it wrong. I remember there was this one guy, you know, one of these prosperity guys. And he said, you know, God doesn't want me to drive a Honda. You know, I mean, I like a Honda. And, uh, or a Toyota or a Nissan or a Volkswagen or, you know, whatever. But God doesn't want me to drive a Honda, you know. And their thought is, is that for something to be miraculous, it also needs to be luxurious. Jesus was miraculous, but not luxurious. You just look at the lifestyle that he led. He was powerful, but he wasn't opulent. There's a difference, and, and we need to understand that subtlety. And so he's going to provide dramatically. He's going to provide miraculously, but not necessarily in luxury. Verse 10. And Jesus said, 
Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Like I said, it's springtime and all the grass is green and it's growing up and the weather's good and it's comfortable and they can all just sit down on the grass on the hillside there and the men sat down in number about 5,000. So again, if they had wives or uh, daughters or sons with them, maybe 10, 15,000 people there, but just the uh, adult men uh, are, are included in the number here, and they have everybody sit down. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, and uh, as much as they wanted. Did you catch that? Did you notice there's a kind of a, a, a flow to this miracle. There's a, a process for this miracle. The first thing is, is that Jesus took what they had. And so, in order for that to happen, for Jesus to take what we have, uh, He won't just take it from us. Um, you've got to give it to Him. You've got to offer it to Him. So that Young boy had to offer what he had to Jesus. Jesus received uh, what was available. And, you know, that's really interesting because you may think, well, you know, I, I, I've got this and, and it's, not, it's not very much. You know, what is, what, what is this little amount of money that I have? Or, you know, what is the, the small amount of time that I have to give worth? What, what is my ability in this area really worth but you know it's interesting we discover that what we have um, becomes bigger uh, and bigger than us when we give it to the lord so as long as we keep it to ourselves it's only five loaves and two fish and if we're gonna just insist nope it's my five loaves and my two fish then it'll always at best, be your five loaves and your two fish until you eat it, and then it's nobody's five loaves and nobody's two fish. But we're talking about this still because he was willing to take what little he had and offer it to Jesus, and it becomes something miraculous. And that's how our lives are. You know, you may have this much to give. You may have something that you feel is worth this much in terms of a your gift or, or, or your time. And you give it to the Lord and suddenly the Lord is able to multiply it and do something uh, great. And so first Jesus received from them what they had. And then it says that when he had given thanks. And so he prays over it. He, give, he gives it to, to, to God and he gives thanks. He thanked God for it. And then he gave it to the disciples and involved them in the work. And that's pretty cool when that happens because, you know, something's given to Jesus and Jesus prays and he blesses it and he thanks God for it. And then he hands it back to us sometimes. He says, here you go. Now, minister with this. And then they, lastly, uh, serve the people there And somewhere in the midst of all of that, Jesus receiving and 
And thanking God, I think that it was subsequent to that. I think, you know, Jesus receives these five loaves, these two fish. He thanks God. But it's somewhere in between that and the disciples, you know, receiving and passing it out that the miracle takes place. And it's interesting to me, as you look at this passage, you can't really tell where it happened. In other words, as you look at that, you can't put your finger and say, ah, you know, right there is where five loaves became whatever number. Right there is where two fish became Enough to feed 5, 10, 15,000 people. What, what, what? You, you can't say where that happened. But it happened. Perhaps it was just, you know, as they gave it out, they just kept giving it out and there was just more and more and more to give. But that's how, that's how it is in life. That's how it is with Jesus, you know. When he's doing a miracle and maybe you look back on it, you might not necessarily, or even while it's happening, you might not necessarily be able to say, oh, I see the miracles happening here. It just, ha- it just is. And, and God just works. And he provides. And he meets those unmet needs. And you can't necessarily say exactly how or when in that situation that he did it. But all, what you can say for sure is that he did it. Because there was no other way it was going to happen. And verse 12, so we see that they didn't just get a little snack, but they were filled. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So everyone is filled and there's leftovers. So not only did they uh, have more than they started with, but they finished with more than they started with. That, that's amazing. And notice also that Jesus has them gather up the leftovers. That's pretty interesting to me. I, you know, I think the, the most surprising thing in this passage is obviously the miracle. You know, that, that with five loaves and two fish, Jesus fed all these people. But maybe the next most surprising thing um, is that there were leftovers and Jesus has them collect the leftovers. You might think, you know, I mean, I can do that. You might think like Jesus would, I can do that again if I want to. In fact, he's going to in the Gospels. This miracle happens twice. Slightly different circumstances and details, but, but Jesus does this at least twice. So he could do this whenever he wanted to. So the question you got to ask is, well, then, you know, if like that he can, you know, have as much bread or turn bread into whatever amount. So, so why collect the leftovers? It's really interesting to me. It's, it's very surprising to me. I would suggest to you that God doesn't waste any part of a miracle. This is a miracle. He just did a miracle, and you don't just leave a miracle laying on the ground. You don't just leave the results of a, a, of a miracle out there for the birds or, or the beasts or the animals. He, he has them collect it all up so it can all be used for his glory. So not only can he be glorified in this moment in this way, but you know later on that day, the next day, 
And so he has them gather up uh, the fragments. The question I would ask you is, has Jesus done a miracle in your life? I suspect that for every single one of you, the answer is yes. Several. Has he done a miracle in your life? Are you saved? That's a miracle. That's the greatest miracle he can do in a life. But I suspect not only that, that he's done many subsequent miracles in your life. So the question is, what are you doing with the fragments? What are you doing with the leftovers of that miracle in your life? Did it just meet your needs or somehow can that which Jesus has done be gathered up and be saved and be used to minister to other people in some way? Are you gathering them up? Are you continuing to serve and to glorify Him? Or are we wasting any part of a miracle that He's done in our lives? Are we wasting our gifts? Are we wasting our calling? Are we wasting our life? Or are we using them to their fullest potential? If you talk about salvation, well, that's the residual of that miracle. Your gifts, your calling, your time, your talent, your treasure, uh, all of those things, using it then to minister to other people. And so verse 13 says, Therefore, they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with the fragments of of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Probably didn't want to collect the fish uh, and, and save that. You know, I think that Jesus just let them finish the fish. And, and, but they collected the bread. That, you know, that, that could go a, a little bit longer. And 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. One for each of them to carry one for each of them to, to contemplate. One for each of them to continue ministering with. A basket. And I would suggest to you that, that each time God works in your life, there's probably a basket. There's a basket of residual. A basket of more. A basket of leftover. And the question is, what are you doing with that? Who are you distributing that to? Who are, who are you allowing to be touched by, by that miracle in addition to yourself? In verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, I'll just tell you this. Some people try to explain away Jesus' miracle. Here, this is usually goes something like this. They say, well, you know, there was this boy and he had uh, five loaves and two fish. Okay, that's a scriptural start. But it ends there. What they say is, and what happened was, he wasn't the only one with bread and fish. Everybody else had some bread and fish too. And when they saw him, this little boy, give his five loaves and his two fish, everybody was inspired and they all shared their lunch with one another. And so they turned the supernatural into the natural. But it doesn't explain the leftovers, one, how they had more than 
they started with after they were all filled. So all of them must have brought a really big lunch. Doesn't explain that. And number two, it doesn't explain their amazement. If they were just inspired by the, by the boy, then why be, what's to be amazed by that? You know, uh, we call that a potluck. People do it all the time, you know. Even unbelievers have potlucks. They could do it too. It, there's nothing miraculous about that. It's fun, but it's not miraculous. It's in, you know, we enjoy it, but it's not a miracle. Here, they clearly had seen a miracle, and they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They saw him as the prophet prophesied uh, by Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses promised them this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. He was speaking of the Messiah. And so it's clear they understood that the prophet would be able to do the miraculous. And they thought that Jesus was the prophet. And it's unclear. And in fact, it seems that a lot of them didn't make the connection that the prophet was the Messiah. But regardless, he had done a miracle. And they thought that he was this, and they were right, that he was this, this person who would come, who would, who would be able to, to do the miraculous. So Jesus performed a miracle. The people that were there that day knew that he performed a miracle. And as we look at this passage, the, the issue isn't um, so much what can Jesus do in seemingly impossible situations. That's not the issue. The issue is, and the question is, what do you believe he can do? It's not what can he do in an impossible situation. It's what do you believe? What are you willing? What are you capable of believing that he can do? And my encouragement is to stretch the boundaries of your imagination and begin to think of what the God of the impossible can do when nothing is possible. And to be anticipating and to be looking for the Lord to work in this way today because He's the same God. He hasn't changed. He, he has the same power. He has the same concern for people, the same ability and desire to save and to meet people's needs. And so it's our job to anticipate and, and to imagine, to wonder about his power and what he could do, and, and then to watch in amazement when he does whatever it is that he has decided that he is going to do in advance. And then, when all that has happened, it's our job to be ready to collect the residual, to collect the leftovers of that miracle and watch that miracle continue. Watch that miracle spread and, and impact the lives of other people. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the, the God of the impossible, and that's because all things are possible with you. And so let us be the people of the impossible God. The people of great faith and imagination and anticipation. 
the people of great expectation in a great God. Just looking to you by faith at what you're going to do, what you could do. And when we don't know, just trusting in you and your power. Watching you work and being ready not only to reap those benefits in our lives, whatever they may be, but allow other people to experience them in their life too. As we're praying this evening, all the things that we've talked about, they follow first knowing your God, having a relationship with Him, having enough faith to believe and to be saved and to choose to walk with Him. And then all of this really comes as a result of that. And so the question is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that when you die, you'll spend an eternity with Him in heaven and not apart from Him in hell? Have you received His sacrifice for your sins on the cross? If you haven't, you can tonight. I, would, I hope that you would tonight. And what God is looking for in you is repentance. What God is asking of you is to give your life to Him and to receive His Son as your Savior. And if you haven't done that, I'd like to pray with you tonight to do that. And God will hear your prayer. And so I invite you right now to raise your hand where you are. We'll pray to close here and we can pray together as we do. If God is speaking to you, then take this opportunity now. Give your life to Christ. Can you slip up your hand this evening if you'd like to do that? And we'll, we'll pray together now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for, for who you are, your great power, your compassion, Lord, your creativity, your wisdom, your plans, your thoughts. Lord, let us anticipate as much as possible. And when we can't anticipate, let us just lean on the fact that you are great and powerful and that you are going to do something even if we don't know what. Let us trust in you. Let us see you work in us and in those around us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.